Let's read in Revelation chapter 3, please, in verse 17. I'm going to be speaking about the subject of pornography. I have spoken about this in front of young families before. And so I trust that you'll feel comfortable, though it is not talked about enough. But the start of my message, I want to break through the denial that we often face around this subject. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. This is written to the church of Laodicea. As we're often told, it applies to our age. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Those little words there at the end of verse 18, so that you may see. Many of us are blind to the effect, the impact that pornography is having in our assemblies. We are blinded, I think. If I read verse 17 correctly, we're blinded by pride. The most rigorous study of pornography consumption amongst Christians was published in April of just this year by the Barna Group. The report, the name of the report is The Porn Phenomenon. And in that report, they noted that 13% of practicing Christians report seeking out pornography daily, weekly, and monthly. And they believe that this number is underreported. That number is mostly averaged down by the extremely low number of Christian women over the age of 25. Uh, very few of them look at pornography. So let's just detail out the statistics a little bit. Practicing male Christians ages 13 to 24, 41% of them use porn regularly. And remember that this is likely underreported. Practicing male Christians ages 25 plus, 23% of them use pornography regularly. Female Christians, 13 to 24, the younger group, 13%. And older female Christians, I should say adult female Christians, apologies. I'll get in trouble for that one for sure. 5%. It's easy to dismiss these numbers as coming from an evangelical group. And to think those prideful, sinful thoughts that so commonly come to us, that these numbers represent a group of people not as spiritually mature nor as well-grounded as assembly Christians. Easy to think that. Allow me to confront this denial. According to a survey by Covenant Eyes, a popular internet filtering software, and granted they're in the business of selling to the problem. So they want to make the numbers look larger. But according to their surveys, they report that self-identified fundamentalists are 91% more likely to look at pornography than regular evangelical church attendees. Conservatism does not improve the issue. A survey I posted on Facebook in 2009, and I'm telling you that I posted on Facebook so that you know that's an audience that's already on the internet and using social media. Not nearly as rigorous as the first study I mentioned, but I put a survey there. The percentages were much higher than those reported by the Barner Group. I saw 50% of assembly men had looked at pornography in the last month. If this was a normalized population, you could line all the men up and go one, two, one, two, one, two, and every time you said the number two, you'd have a man that was using pornography within the last month. At that time, one in eight women, one in five Sunday school teachers, 
the average age of first exposure was 12 years old. Out of curiosity, I posted another survey to Facebook in October, just about six weeks ago. On that survey, it came in that 46% of assembly men had looked at pornography at least once in the last month, and about 40% of assembly women. So the female consumption has gone up significantly, which echoes what we're seeing in secular research. On average, if you'd looked at pornography in the last month, you have been struggling with this problem for nine years, four months. This is a real problem, a real problem amongst us. But these statistics, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting them as shock and awe because I do want us to awaken to this, to break through the denial of the reality that we think we're a people that are above this kind of problem. If you've arrived at that point in, or at this point in your assembly experience, believing that we are the cream of the Christian crop, let me speak the very words of Christ himself to you. As he said them to the church at Laodicea, you say, I am rich in truth. I have prospered in the way we gather. And I need nothing from anybody else to help us. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You can disagree with me. I'm giving you permission. But you cannot disagree with the Lord Jesus Christ. If we actually want to be the kind of people with whom Christ is pleased to dwell, we get there through a broken and a contrite spirit, not through spiritual elitism. And as part of that, we have to face the reality of this problem among us. And yet these statistics do not communicate anything of, of the, the brokenness. These are just numbers. The brokenheartedness of those who are enmeshed in the besetting sin of pornography use. Listen to this spoken word poem as it gives a window into the experience of a believer caught in pornography. Yeah, I know this is sin, but here I am again. It started off so mild, wasn't anything wild, just a little curious. Now it makes me furious. I've tried to stop the moral drop. One day I quit, the next I'm bit. I prayed for help to be free. That's why Christ died on the tree. But there must be something wrong with me because I'm not winning like I ought to be. And here I am, lying in my bed, racing thoughts stampeding through my head, none of them impeding what I dread. Grab my phone like a drone. Find the sights that excite can't control the lust, ignore the one I ought to trust. Why it's always got to go like this. This sketchy promise of cheap bliss. And then shame is my abyss. I'm so lost. Such a cost. I, my own disdain, I fell again. I ascertain a ball in chain. But I must refrain and hope obtain. But where's my out? I have no clout, my hope, I doubt, my sin is out. What? A shout? He cries out. It is finished. I'm not banished. He atones for my sin. I am known as his kin. Gotta let this in. Living water for this rotter. Sin erased by his blotter. Now I see there's power. Lord, bring me to the hour. Cleanse me like a shower from the sin so sour. That is the addict's perspective. 45% of the married men who responded to my survey said that pornography was a current struggle. Another 42% said it was a past struggle. And so I'm betting there's some wives today here barely holding it all together. Most of us have no idea of the traumatic wounds inflicted on wives of pornography addicts. Listen to the words of this assembly wife that I share with her permission from her darkest moment as she could not fix his addiction. I couldn't breathe. Went to the kitchen. 
and pulled out a knife and held it to my throat. I was ready to do it. Can you see the desperation? Another says, I found out everything. Several years married, I was crushed. I couldn't do anything to stop his addiction. Two-thirds of sexually betrayed wives developed the symptoms of PTSD. That's the same that the Iraqi war veterans are coming back with. They were coming back with. So traumatic is the betrayal of pornography addiction. And these are the things I hear about trauma, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, the devastation of body image, the erosion of self-esteem, self-blame for his issues, loss of self-confidence in the wife having nobody to turn to. And listen, most of what I have to say today is for the addict, but I want you to know these things, dear sister, or in some cases, dear husband. It's not your fault that your husband is looking at pornography, even if he says it is. The second thing you need to know is that you cannot fix his problem. It's not your responsibility, and even if it was, you have no ability within your power to fix it. I'm sorry. You don't. Third thing, only light can expel darkness. Don't fear the light. Protecting the addict is not helping him. Light comes in the form of setting loving boundaries like, I love you, but I am not willing to compete with or live with pornography in our marriage. You will get help until you're free of this, or I will consider, and then you can tell him whatever you're willing, actually willing to enforce. Maybe going to your elders, maybe going to your parents or his parents. Maybe a period of therapeutic separation with a view to reuniting after he's taking his problem seriously. Much more could be said on this. Uh, For wives, I'm just going to refer you to my blog. We have an article on this. This is one of my sites, onlyyouforever.com. That's a short link there, and it deals with the subject of what to do when you find out about your husband's pornography addiction. I hope that just with this introduction you understand that this is a real issue affecting real people in assemblies today. So I'm going to speak for a few minutes about how we can shape the culture of our assemblies to help addicts come forward for help, to not create cultures that foster addiction. And then I'd like to talk about how we can help protect our families and have family dynamics that are resilient towards this problem, that prepare our children for facing pornography. And then I want to speak to the addict. Please don't get hung up today on the word addict. Most of uh, here today may have preconceived ideas of what that word means based on dated definitions from Alcoholics Anonymous. When I use the word, I'm simply talking about a believer who wants to stop a sinful coping mechanism but has failed in their attempts so far. Assemblies. I'd like to challenge overseers here today to ask the question, how can we make our assemblies addict-friendly? Addict-friendly. Now, for your information, I do have a series of posts on my other website, Oversight Today. It guides overseers through a process, a detailed process, over a number of sessions where you can help an addict recover from a classic pornography addiction. There is a link to that in the resource guide that our brothers mentioned during the announcements. But when I ask how we can make our assemblies addict-friendly, this is not about approaching our assembly practice from a consumer-driven perspective, but it's about shaping our assembly culture to the point where someone like a sexually broken Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, could come and be fully known and experience grace and learn what true worship is about, really about, and then go invite her circle of troubled friends to come to the same place as well. I think that would be a Christ-like assembly. Would you be comfortable in a Christ-like assembly? If that's what it was like? Probably not all the time. That's a good thing. We shouldn't be comfortable all the time. But let me give you three things to think about very briefly. First, I challenge overseers to model vulnerability and authenticity. Those two things make you and I approachable so that struggling saints will find it easier to ask for help. And if you need help with those subjects, again, I'll refer you to my website. I do have a post on that at oversight.today/19. It's also in your download file. 
but we need to understand how to model vulnerability and authenticity. The second thing we need to do is to teach the flock of God that their worth is not based on performance or appearance. And this can be talked about extensively, but the more gospel-based your culture is, rather than performance-oriented, the less shame will be induced. Your flock will serve from a place of acceptance, rather than serving or complying with externals in order to feel accepted. You have to get this worth issue right, to have a sound understanding of the gospel for saints, not just sinners, in order for the people of God to feel less shamed and to live boldly for Christ. The third thing that we need to do, and we're going to be doing this a little bit this afternoon, we need to teach our people how to love each other. I don't mean agape love, I mean phileo love, like actually feel affection and have real relationships and times of sharing and emotional connection, especially men. This is a huge cultural problem in North America that has woven itself into the fabric of our assemblies and is a contributing cause to the pornography problem, is the lack of good friendships. And again, I'll talk more about this when we talk about intimacy after lunch. But if you shape your assembly culture in a way that emphasizes authenticity, emphasizes worth based on Christ, and loving one another, that will be a huge blessing to the saints that gather with you. It will help the saints to be more resilient to addiction and will help it make it easier for addicts to come forward and ask for help. Let's talk about families for a moment. Each of our families could be pinned somewhere on this diagram. If you want to find this diagram, just Google the word circumplex model. You'll find it all over the internet. It's been used in over 1,200 studies. And very quickly, there are two axes on this diagram. There is this uh, flexibility axis here. And families are either chaotic, flexible, structured, or rigid. It moves from high flexibility in the family to low flexibility. And then the other axis is along the bottom. It's called cohesion. And families here, again, move on a spectrum from little closeness and loyalty to very high closeness and loyalty through engagement or being separated or connected or enmeshed. And very simply, you want to land your family in the pink. I'm switching terms here slightly. 88% of sex addicts, not porn addicts, sex addicts, 88% of sex addicts fall into this category right here. When we grow up in law-abiding local churches and families that require adherence to physical externals, to looking the part, and have little emotional connection, we bury ourselves firmly in this problem corner. Many porn addicts will find themselves down in this area or in this area, up in here. So I just mentioned that very quickly for you to look at, and again to encourage you to Google that, and to ask the question, what would it take for us to move our family? For those of you that have children, that are raising children, what would it take for us to move our family if we feel like we're somewhere on the side of this thing to move it in the, towards the center? It doesn't matter which of these four quadrants you fall into. You can pick your own style. In the Word of God, we see some of this represented through the teaching of, for example, of Paul to Colossians. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they be discouraged. Discouragement is the idea of losing heart. Losing heart. What is losing heart? That's Low cohesion, being disengaged. Don't provoke your children to be disengaged. What does Peter instruct husbands to do? To dwell with their wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto them, or live with your wife in an understanding way. What is understanding about? Understanding is based on having a healthy connection to your, to your spouse and avoiding the extremes of chaos or rigidity. These here, disengaged extremes that take you away. And so we do have the instructions in the Word of God to help us move there in principle. I want to very quickly touch on prevention for families and protection for families, but I think the most important thing that you need to know is you have to prepare your family because you can't prevent this. It's coming to your family if it's not already there.
There's no exceptions. Here's what we do in our family. All devices get charged in the kitchen. There's no phones, tablets, or laptops in bedrooms. There's no TVs in bedrooms either, even for adults. By the way, adults, studies show that you'll have 50% less physical intimacy if you have a TV in your bedroom. Why would you do that to yourself? Take the TV out of your bedroom. The computer for kids is in the living room. The screen is facing out. Anything in our house that the kids use in an internet browser has filtering that's trying to block as much of the bad stuff as you can and accountability so that everybody knows and can see what others are looking at. Anything that we adults use does not have filtering, but it does have accountability. We use Covenant Dyes for filtering and accountability. It's highly recommended. It's $15 a month for your family, so it should be affordable for most. Um, You can set up filter levels on a per-person basis. I won't go into that, but there is a link in the file to that site. When it comes to social media, you can't control what is inside that. And so that's where the preparation piece comes in, evaluating the maturity, the readiness of your children. Have you talked to them? And then also some social media platforms are much more prone to smut than others. Some have relatively good, decent um, anti-pornography policies, such as Facebook and Instagram, although stuff still gets on there. We tried Snapchat for a little bit, but at the time it was constantly pushing out smut into the snaps or stories, so we ditched Snapchat as a family. Or actually, it was just my daughter and I trying it out at the time. And then time management becomes another issue because that's another topic for families and being disconnected. We use a device called Circle. It's available on Amazon. It's about $100. And it's delightful because as a parent, it stops you from having the argument with your child about whether they've had too much time on their device or not. After an hour of Internet use or whatever you set it to, it just cuts them off. And they get mad at the device and not at you. Very, very effective. There's some good books for younger children in the resources as well. So if you have kids in school, you can be like the Lord Jesus Christ said, I pray now that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them, preserve them in the world. And one of the ways you can do that is by reading some of these good books that talk about good pictures and bad pictures as well. That's all I have to say about uh, families. I want to speak to addicts now. And to those of you that are struggling with this problem, there are five things that you need to accomplish to break free from this sin through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the titles are going to be on the bottom of each slide here. The first is to block the behavior. This is about eliminating opportunities for the flesh. The second is to identify triggers or patterns that happen, like the way you go towards pornography so that you can break out of them early on. The third is to understand your ideal fantasy. Your fantasy is a reflection of wounds within that are due to sin that you have not yet taken to Christ for sanctification. I want to look at emotional drivers. And then fifth, yearning, the yearning for God and for intimacy. First is about blocking the behavior. This is about putting to death opportunities for the flesh. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 says, Have no confidence in the flesh. 1 Peter 2, verse 11 says, Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. Well, this pornography thing wars against the soul. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Flee also youthful lusts. And all of those things are just stop, move back, move away messages. And so you need to do whatever you can to make it as difficult as possible to access pornography. Filter your internet. Turn that on today. Use an accountability software like Covenant Eyes. Lock your phone down by removing the browser. Remove apps. Remove social media accounts. Anything that's a portal to pornography has to go. Give up your smartphone if you have to. Filter every and any internet-enabled device in your life. Basically here you're trying to create as much distance as possible between yourself and the images or your video or videos that you look for. This is an important short-term strategy to make sure that the ease of access is eliminated. But honestly, it's nowhere near enough. It's not enough. Most of us only ever get this far. But this is just white knuckling. 
It's only you holding on by your own strength, just desperately trying not to go there. But we know from the doctrines of the Gospel that using the law and any activity of the flesh is insufficient to produce sanctification. It's not enough to merely merely create barriers between us and sin. That is not sanctification. Barriers are not sanctification. It's not addressing the heart problem. But it is one way. It is one way of fleeing youthful lusts, of abstaining, of demonstrating that you agree with God that truly you have no confidence in the flesh, so therefore you're going to give it no opportunity. Do this today. Not even tomorrow. Do it before you go to bed. Do it before you decide to have one last binge. Lock yourself out. Find a friend or a parent or a shepherd in your assembly who will be your accountability partner. Someone who's bold enough to ask you the hard questions. Put some practical obstructions in place. Block the behavior. Then we also need to identify triggers and patterns. And for this, I refer to Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. I'll just quote the part of the verse to you. It says, Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. James chapter 1 verse 14 to 15 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So if you're here today and you're struggling with pornography addiction, you've probably noticed that you always dabble around the edges before being pulled into the vortex. And then once you're in the spiral and you're in the movement, it's unstoppable until you're done. But you've likely never given a lot of thought or careful consideration to that dabbling stage where you're just kind of kicking the tires and speculating about possibilities and reinvoking curiosities. If you really flesh out the details of those early thoughts, of the routines that you go through, you may not even, you probably don't even realize they're there, but there are steps that you ritualistically go through to move towards pornography. And both of these scriptures point to the reality that there is a process by which we're drawn in. In Romans, Paul notes that we make provision for and then we fulfill the lust. James points out that there is that drawing in, there is that enticing. Then lust, then it conceives, then sin, then there's a finish, then death. That deep sense of alienation, of separation from God. Think about the last time you sinned in this fashion. What were you doing just before you hit that first illicit website? What were you doing just before that? And just before that? And just before that? There's a process. It can help to think of this as a chain. Not in the sense of being bound by something, but in the sense that there's a sequence of links that follow one after the other. But the chain that I speak of is not like your normal steel chain. Maybe it's just very soft, brittle links at the start. But as they go, the links become stronger and harder and impossible to break. And it's when you're at the earliest part of that chain that you can break the chain, you can get out of it. You don't have to continue going to the end. But if you reflect on your experience, you will know as well as I that when you move through that chain, as you get further and further along, you're just you're on the slippery slope. You can't break the chain. You can't get off the slope. So by identifying those earliest triggers and those steps you take and the things you think, that is all vital. It makes you aware of how you begin to make provision for the flesh and then to make more provision and more provision until you're in full-blown lust and then sin. When you know those early links, you know what you need to do to divert. You know how to get out of the chain. You might catch yourself in the earliest stages, maybe at work, just to give you an example, thinking, boy, this is turning out to be a brutal day at work. I'll look forward to some stress relief when I get home. Now, what will you do when you get home? Will it be provision for your flesh? Or will it be provision for your soul? It's not wrong to conclude that your work day has been brutal. It's not wrong to recognize their stress and that you need to de-stress. But what are you going to make provision for? Will you allow your thinking to take you towards a sinful pleasure for that refreshment? 
Or will you start to plan for healthy pleasure, to enjoy some joy, like Stephen was talking to us about? Maybe some Christian music or calling up a good friend or getting some exercise or finding a way to serve someone instead of exploiting someone. Remember, it's at this early point where the chain is its weakest. When you make yourself aware of these very, very early links, you have your best opportunity to break the chain quickly. Third thing, your fantasy reflects your brokenness. Just go over briefly, please, to John chapter 4. There's uh, so much we could learn from the story of the woman at the well, sexually broken women coming to the Lord Jesus. John 4, verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. And so he opens the conversation. Now I'm going to trust your knowledge of this story a little bit. There's a small quote from a book written in 1945 called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. It's a Catholic novel. I haven't read it, and I'm not recommending it. But that book is best known just for these words. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. So true. In John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. They are both thirsty. The Lord uses that physical thirst as a window into this woman's heart to uncover her deepest needs. And it's interesting for all that is spoken that he gives her just two commands. The first command is give me to drink. The second command is go, call your husband. His strategy is profound but simple. One, use the physical to show her the deep thirst in her soul. Give me to drink. Two, give her a window into how she's been trying to quench that deeper thirst in an immoral way. The Lord wants her to bring, the Lord wants to bring her multiple husbands, to bring the current common law relationship out onto the table. You see that in verse 16. And in verse 16, you'll notice that he does this right after she says, Give me this water to him. Give me this water that I thirst not. She's sensing that there's something more than quenching of physical thirst being offered. And she doesn't yet recognize the Messiah, though she's looking at him. By asking about her husband, he connects her to the guilt and the hurt and the disappointment of her past. Ultimately, you see, her sin was a search, maybe even a quest, a quest for something to complete her, something to fill the emptiness that she felt. And in this, I have a very nuanced point to make, very nuanced point. The action of pursuing fantasy and pornography is idolatrous and immoral, but the need driving your search is valid. The need driving your search is valid. That's why you, like this woman, need to bring that deeper thirst into the light. You do this by identifying the fantasy and inquiring about the need that it attempts to soothe. Allow me to explain this. The reason why this, hint, this sin holds such a grip in the life of the addict is because it works. Sort of. And only temporarily. And with waves of shame that follow. But for a moment, it does work. All addictions do. They alleviate the pain of brokenness. But sexual addictions offer a pseudo-intimacy that takes you away from the deep loneliness that you feel. It offers the nurturing that maybe some here were never given by their mothers or fathers. It extends validation, maybe, that you were never given. And we're not here to lay blame at the feet of others, but just understand that in pornography, you may feel finally that you are wanted, that you are appreciated, that you are desired, you're needed, validated, accepted, loved, befriended. It's not wrong to feel the need. For any of those things, if they're missing, it's not wrong to feel the need. But porn is only a quick fix. There's no lasting relief there. That's why you have to keep going back 
because your pursuit of fantasy is actually a thirst for holiness, for wholeness, I should say, a thirst for wholeness. And the reason why you never get to wholeness through pornography is because it cannot satisfy. It cannot satisfy. It's a broken cistern. You're going to the wrong well. And that's what this woman had to learn in her life, that she'd been going to the wrong well, to this series of men. And when she got to the right well, then her thirst was satisfied. And having found Christ, she leaves with a bottomless spring of living water. Did it ever puzzle you that the conversation in John chapter 4 suddenly switches to worship in verse 20? Sudden turn there. And that to this broken, lonely, immoral, Samaritan woman of all people, the Son of God makes one of the most profound statements about worship. Can I, can I ask the question? Is she a worthy audience for such a profound truth? And then to top it off, the Lord Jesus makes his clearest claim to be the Messiah to this woman. He didn't even do that to his own people. Let me tell you, she is the ideal audience for such a truth. The more broken you are, the more you need to know that Christ is everything. That worship of the one true God and finding all of your needs met in Christ is truly the only thing that can displace the grip of sin in your life. And you need to understand what it is you fantasize about and the search terms you use to find your illicit material and the types of images or videos you are most drawn to. In those things you'll have a reflection of the broken parts of yourself, broken by sin but never taken to Christ for redemption and healing. I'd love to illustrate this with examples, but it's not appropriate from the platform. But follow the principle. You'll know what I mean if you're in this. Your fantasy echoes those deepest wounds of your brokenness. And the grip of pornography is eased when we taste and see that the Lord is good or that the Lord is better, far better. That He has living water that quenches our thirst. And doesn't drinking that living water doesn't leave us feeling guilty or dirty or shameful. You've been looking to meet your need in all the wrong places. And it's ultimately in God that we are meant to understand that we are appreciated and desired and needed and validated and accepted and befriended and loved. It's ultimately in God that this soul thirst is quenched. By the way, I did say ultimately in God, not marriage. A common mistake for singles is to assume that finding a spouse will remove the pornography problem. Not true. You need Christ first and foremost. Intimacy with Him. And then you'll be able to have healthy intimacy with your spouse. Let's talk about emotional drivers. We need to become more aware of the emotions at play and take them to the healthy place instead of pornography. I think this is why as well that there are more men involved with pornography than women is because we're not emotionally aware of what's going on inside ourselves. We've been taught to restrain that and not to acknowledge it. But we need to bring our emotions to God. By the way, just in case there's folks here today that aren't... Well, there's definitely not folks here today. I'm sorry. There are definitely not folks here today struggling with pornography. You've been preserved. Praise God. Uh, But just in case you're feeling left out, if you have a smartphone, as I do, can I talk to you about your smartphone for a minute? Think about the emotions that you feel. When you compulsively pick up your phone to check Snapchat, check Facebook, play a game, check your email, emotions like boredom, maybe loneliness, awkwardness, nobody standing around, don't have anybody to talk to, conference is a good spot to use your phone, sadness, maybe, frustration, anxiety, insecurity, fear, all those reasons we grab our phones. Is it wrong to feel any of those emotions? Is it wrong? No. Those are all valid. All valid needs. Now, what's the Bible word for when we go to something other than God to have our needs met? It's idolatry. Idolatry. You see, this little thing that you and I carry in our pocket, this is not just an iPhone, this is an idol. An idol. It really is. And I fight it all the time. I kick myself. 
Now, the exact same issue happens in compulsive pornography use. There are valid feelings being taken to an invalid coping mechanism. And this is idolatrous too, and yet the point is, the feelings are valid, but what you're doing about them is not. And I typically see this happening at two levels. There's the more basic level. I I teach pornography addicts the acronym HULK. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If you're feeling more than one of those things, you're definitely vulnerable to act out in that moment if you're a pornography addict. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Think about Esau. He was probably feeling all four of those things when he ditched his birthright for a bowl of soup. And as believers, we can ditch our purity for a bowl of sin just as quickly when we're in the same place. But then there are deeper emotions that you need to become aware of as well. And sometimes it requires, well, always it requires you just to be willing to stop and to sit with those feelings until you understand what they are, so you can acknowledge them and see them. It's not wrong to feel them. It's not wrong to own them. And there is someone there, always our Savior, who's ready to meet them. But the most important feeling that we need to deal with is the feeling of shame. And this is why I mentioned this back when I was talking about assemblies. Shame says that you're a bad person. You're never good enough. You're not doing well enough. Shame says something about your identity. Who you are is not good enough. Guilt, on the other hand, is productive. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame is about identity. Guilt is about behavior. In the life of the believer, in our position in Christ, it's clear that we need to know that there is no, no need for shame. Our identity is found in Christ. It is pure. It is holy. It's redeemed. It's a position given to us. Granted. But guilt is there to guide us when we step outside of the law of God, when we do things that are wrong. And so that's useful. And what Satan wants to do is for all of us to feel that sense of shame, that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy. Why? So that we don't serve God. So that we don't pray on a Sunday morning because we know we are looking at porn on Wednesday. That's how Satan uses shame. And shame fuels the cycle of addiction, a cycle that begins with preoccupying. That's the chain. That's thinking about those thoughts, those early links when you're just uh, contemplating. And then you move through your rituals until you're sufficiently aroused to bypass your conscience. Then you act out. Then you're filled with self-loathing and shame. And the only way to get rid of that shame for the addictive cycle is to go to where you can find acceptance and validation and comfort so you go back into the cycle because pornography offers or appears to offer acceptance and validation and comfort. Only it's a fraud. It's not the real thing. So you go around and again and again and again. When you're a child of God, there's two escape routes out of this. The first is that you can choose to believe God about what He says about you. And I'm not going to give you this one. I'll let you look it up for yourselves. Do your homework. Dig into your New Testament. See what God says about you as a believer. We have to take our identity from Him and from no other source. But the second thing that you also need to do is to choose to believe God about what He says regarding the grip of sin in the life of a believer. I know that if you're listening today and you're desperate to get out of this, you feel trapped. But you also need to believe fiercely in the truth claim of Romans 6, verse 14, that sin shall not have dominion over you. You need to believe that verse fiercely. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Is it really true? You bet it is. You've been made free from sin. And the only thing that you are actually in bondage to to today as a believer is righteousness. Read it for yourself in Romans chapter 6. But you have to claim God's identity and God's word for yourself to fight this battle. Remember, watch halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Watch those feelings that lead you towards pornography. Take those feelings. They're valid. Take them to God. But shame, you must slay with Scripture. And finally, yearning and intimacy. Do you want me to truncate this greatly, John, or do we have a few minutes? I need six and a half or so. This is soul work. There are a few things more tender, more delicate, 
more precious than the healing of the human soul. We have to go to Christ for this. I often wonder what it would have been like to gaze in the face of Christ as he read these words in Nazareth. Listen to these words, please. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. At the root of brokenheartedness is this one profound but un- and uncomplicated yearning. We each need at least one loving, compassionate, trustworthy, secure, validating relationship in order to survive. And parenting should provide this. But I can never parent my children perfectly because I, as the provider, am broken myself. Marriage should be a relationship like this and it can get close, but again, sin prevents a perfect score. Every man or woman should have a same-sex friendship or two that provides something close to this. I've never met a pornography addict with a friendship like this in place. Male pornography addict, I should say. Ultimately, there's only one place, only one place, that a perfectly loving, always compassionate, completely trustworthy, eternally secure, and genuinely validating relationship can be found, and that is in the fatherhood of God. The fatherhood of God. Here in John chapter 4, the Lord has pointed this dear broken woman to the worship of the Father. In verse 22, he points out that she did not know what she was worshiping. Now in verse 23, if you look at that, he wants her to know who she should be worshiping. He wants her to know the Father. And the trail of broken relationships behind this woman was evidence of her attempt to satiate her soul thirst with men. Follow me carefully here. The essential yearning of the human soul is a thirst placed by God and designed by God to only find its satisfaction in God. It all points to God. And so it's no coincidence that in the final epistle of your New Testament, you find these closing words. Now to him that is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's Jude 24:25. Every rec- recovered porn addict that I have worked with has learned this truth. Even the spouses of addicts learn this truth. I shared the painful story of a sister in Christ earlier, married to a sex addict, now recovered. Listen to her words a little further. But the key for my personal and mental health is to not rely on my husband and his change whether or not he had actually changed, but to focus my one and true, focus on my one and true relationship with God. He is the light to this darkness in our marriage. And he is my safe place and comfort. He alone brings me hope. Hope. The reason why the grip of pornography is so strong is that it will actually give a fleeting relief to this longing to the addict. It is the most brilliant, deceptive, fraudulent lie ever sprung by the great deceiver. The false embrace of those immoral pixels offers the eros of passion, the phileo of companionship, and the agape of desire. And all this smothered in secrecy as a pretense for trust and security and enticement as validation of your desirability. It's garbage. It's a lie. In fact, most, if not all, sins of the body and addictive sins offer something of the same panacea. Either giving or providing a false replica or at least a numbing of the pain of the absence of this perfect relationship. Think about them. Think about how these things numb or distract from what really matters. Alcohol and drug abuse. Social media addiction. Good portion of us here today struggling with that. Self-harm. Promiscuity. Infidelity. Eating disorders. Overeating, legalism, envy, idolization of fitness or the attempt to appear like you have it all together, perfectionism, all our human attempts to meet 
or escape a need that only God can fill, a thirst that only our Father can satisfy. Your greatest task for recovery is to take your brokenness to God, to ask Him to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. It is not wrong, again, it is not wrong to want to be loved, to desire compassion, to long for a trustworthy friend, to want to feel secure, to accept validation. But even a healthy, robust marriage cannot perfectly meet all of those needs all of the time. Even what happens if your spouse dies? We need something more sure, a more firm foundation. And there is only one God for that. Only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is touched by the feelings of these infirmities that we've been speaking about. You need Christ not just to become a Christian, but to live as a Christian. And the deepest yearnings of your soul can only be met in Christ. Listen to the words of my Savior in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. I'll close with the lyrics by Crowder from Come As You Are. Listen to these words. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted. Let rescue begin. Come, find your mercy. This is an invitation for you today if you're struggling with pornography. O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. So lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. Lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart. Come as you are. There is hope for the hopeless. And all those who've strayed, come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary. Rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot cure. So lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. So lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart. Come as you are. Come as you are.